Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rock Star. This is chapter 30 called Taking, Taking the Temperature of the Room. A great deal of what I do as an itinerant musician involves repeatedly walking into new environments. Though I might play 250 gigs in a calendar year, unlike going to the same office five days per week, I'm constantly playing venues for the very first time. There are certainly numerous repeat engagements, but even after nearly 30 years of doing this, I play new joints all the time. When entering a new performance space for a gig, I like to get the feel for what my surroundings are. I take the temperature of the room, so to speak. I look for subtle and not so subtle cues that let me know exactly where I am, how I fit into the scenario, and what type of energy I can anticipate receiving from those around me for the duration of the engagement. It lets me know how welcome I am in this place, how hard I'm going to have to work to get through the night, or how much shit I can anticipate having to eat before the end of the evening. Almost always I have traveled over some time and distance to get to a venue. Travel is tiring, no matter who you are. From subway delays to Holland Tunnel traffic jams to long-haul transit Pacific flights, very often I've been through a little duress before I even walk in the door. This is not a complaint, this is just a statement of fact. I've learned from years of doing this that nobody cares what kind of a day you've had before you get to the gig. They only know or care about dealing with you for right now, which is exactly as it should be for the most part. This is why it pays to leave whatever grief you're carrying with you outside of the venue if possible, but I digress. When walking into a new dressing room for the first time, if there is a bottle of water waiting for the weary traveler, that tiny gesture of hospitality goes a long way. I guess one of the reasons why I remain impressed by being offered a mere bottle of water after all this time is because it so rarely happens. Usually there's nothing. You should expect nothing. There will be nothing. You'll get nothing unlike it. I have a long-running joke about asking people at the venue if this is indeed the hostility suite. I repeat myself a lot. You'll get used to it. There are other indications besides the usual non-availability of food and drink that may indicate just exactly where one has found oneself at the end of one's travels. For instance, a hotel I was scheduled to stay in in Miami Beach advertised on their website, Bachelorette Party Packages, Your Last Fling Before the Ring. Oh boy. I noticed immediately upon entering my room in this very cute, newly renovated Art Deco hotel, the easy, clean, squeegee-friendly plastic flooring. It told me a great deal about the clientele of the hotel and about my chances for enjoying a quiet night's sleep at this lovely establishment. If the website advertisement weren't enough of an advance hint, the check-in desk would have been the clincher. There was a live DJ in the hotel lobby set up with full party volume PA system. Normal conversational volume with the receptionist was rendered impossible, requiring her to scream at me, I need your ID and a credit card for incidentals. With the same ferocity, one might intone towards a mixologist in a thunderous nightclub, give me a Bay Breeze and a Jaeger bomb. To, pre to prevent the need for hollering the answers for my next questions, there was a convenient sign posted 
on the front desk listing the names and shift times of the DJ talent in the lobby. It was clear from this placard that DJ Marvin would be spinning until 2 a.m. Even though my room was on the third floor, DJ Marvin and I seemed to enjoy a special relationship in my bed until that hour. After three days of that town where DJ seems to come pouring out of every business and establishment on the main drag, I had had quite enough of the unka unka music. As I said when I returned home, if I hear the beat drop one more time, sometimes the room announces its temperature before you get uh, a chance to even take out the thermometer. Countless other times when we have been accosted by a restaurant owner or country club manager as we are physically walking in through the door. They come running up to us basically saying that we're already too loud. But wait, we haven't played a note yet. How do you know we're too loud? Then they go into some diatribe about all the complaints they've gotten in their entire lives about loud bands. I would love to have the chance just one time to demonstrate how softly I can play before I'm reprimanded. I'll stand there with, with my volume knob completely turned off if the gig pays the same amount of money. I've done it before and I'll do it again. In New York City, this started to get really bad about two mayors ago. Blowhard Rudy Giuliani and his successor, uh, Mike Bloomberg, started, uh, uh, Giuliani started and Bloomberg continued to literally criminalize sound. The cops seemed to go through varying levels of enthusiasm when enforcing these mayoral, mayoral dictums. I guess it depends upon what the boss had for lunch on a specific day. At the worst point in, in this enforcement, uh, the cops were forced to show up any time somebody complained at all. Just looking at a combination of population density compared with statistics of general human happiness will reveal intuitively that there is at least one crank on every single block who will complain. It doesn't matter if your gig is juggling cotton balls. Some idiot is going to think that it's still too loud. This equation is further complicated by having super rich people buying properties in Manhattan because they are the only people who can afford it. They want to be in the city because it's the trendy place to be. They forget that the reason that it's trendy is because of all the artists and musicians who live and create here. Suddenly, when they buy a multi-million dollar apartment in the, in the heart of Greenwich Village, they expect peace and quiet. I've never understood this logic, nor the hubris that follows it manifesting in the sense of entitlement many rich people have, thinking that they have a special right to complain. At the height of the noise crackdown in New York City, the edict was that if the cops could hear just one decibel of sound outside of your establishment, technically, you were in violation. The first visit from the cops got you a warning. The second visit by the cops got you a $700 ticket. The third visit from the cops got you a $1,400 ticket. And the fourth visit got you a padlock on your front door. The city officially declared you out of business. It happened to an old concert venue on Bleecker Street called the Elbow Room. Rich people moved into the trendy and expensive neighborhood. The mayor decided that the needs of rich people far outweigh anything else. Somebody complained. The nightclub got padlocked. It's a chain drugstore now. My regular long-term nightclub gig in the village had to deal with this increasingly through the years. They kept getting tickets and kept fighting them because the owner's wife was a lawyer. Whatever hell they were catching from the neighbors and from the city, they passed directly on to us in the band. Uh, we were even on alert at one point that whenever the manager signaled 5-0 from the front door, we were immediately to turn down to a whisper no matter what we had been playing. This meant that there was a cop outside. 
I think the regulations have relaxed slightly from the worst it ever got around the year 2000, but it's still bad. There's another club on Bleecker Street that has been there for decades, suddenly having trouble with an upstairs neighbor who has also lived above the club for decades. Some people just want to cause problems. In a way, I get it when a bar manager comes running over to me and tells me that I'm too loud before I even get the bass out of the case. It still doesn't make it any more fun to hear. When playing gigs in restaurants and in catering halls especially, it's often a fun little game to try to figure out how musician-friendly they are in any given establishment. Do they like bands or feel compelled to barely tolerate them? Are we going to have an easy night of working with a professional and cordial manner with a mater d, or is it going to be a long and adversarial engagement? One simple litmus test I like to perform is going up to the bar and seeing if I can get served. Many catering halls have a strict policy about not serving the musicians alcohol. I can understand why having an open, open bar for bands probably isn't a good idea in general, but I'm over 21. It's legal for me to responsibly and enjoy a, a, an adult beverage and a room full of other adults also enjoying fermented products. It feels oddly punitive if I am not allowed to play in, in any of their reindeer games. This prohibition happens so frequently that my standard wedding band rig consists of a bass, an amp, any sheet music I will need for the evening, power bars for the disappointingly frequent instances that the catering hall refuses to serve me anything non-carnivorous, and a flask with Jack Daniels in it just in case. On a band break, I will belly up to the bar and say, give me a club soda, please. I will wait a beat. Then I add, and give me a shot of Jack to help wash that down with. Usually they laugh. About a third to a half of the time, they will give me the shot. The rest of the time, they will say they can't serve me because I'm in the band. But I have presented it to them as a joke so they don't have to get all nasty about refusing. And then occasionally, something else entirely happens. At one particular Russian catering hall way out in the wilds of Brooklyn, next door to a bowling alley that had razor wire across the windows, any attempts to seem opulent, high class, or even gaudy were laughable. It was a hellhole neighborhood and just barely maintaining appearances uh, with duct tape and chicken wire. I went up to the bar and handed in my standard line, eh, give me a shot of Jack to wash that down with. The Russians aren't known for their senses of humor. I, I guess it's cold where they come from, and by that I mean Sheep's Head Bay. The bartender deadpans without missing a beat, we only have Johnny Volker Blue. Now, Johnny Volker Blue costs about $200 per bottle. Shots of blue in Manhattan will run $45 to $65 each. A scum hole on Avenue X in Brooklyn does not have only Johnny Walker blue. I would venture to say that they are likely, that they very likely don't have any Johnny Walker blue. So sure they have the bottle, but whatever's inside is something else. I told him that would be fine. He poured me the shot. I enjoyed whatever rot gut it was as much as I would enjoy anything else. Another notable instance of knowing exactly what kind of establishment I was entering happened to me at a modest hotel in Miami. There was a sign by the front desk that said, no refunds after 15 minutes. Anytime someone has gone to the trouble to make a sign, this means that said behavior or phenomenon is enough of a recurring theme to be an issue. So let us examine what this sign told us about this hotel immediately upon check-in. The very first line of the hotel policy stated that it was a drug-free environment. That sounds like a sensible position, but again, if it needs to be committed to a wall posting on the very top line, it means that there have been numerous past occurrences to warrant said signage. 
shirt and shoes are required. This is a little more understandable uh, of a reminder given the fact that the hotel is in Miami, though it was miles away from any beach or pool. No alcohol littering or assembly in the common area or lobby. Again, fair enough. But the need to say it explicitly means that it needed to be said. But what's that on the last line? No refund after 15 minutes. Ah, there's the thing that spoke volumes about where we were. It made me wonder how many incidences there had been in the past to warrant such a declaration, what their frequency was, and what was the motivation of the refund seekers. This is a humble, was a humble hotel, privately owned, not a corporate chain, located directly across the street from the University of Miami. Perhaps certain clientele booked the rooms sight unseen online and were possibly disappointed with the humble yet clean accommodations upon first sight. That's possible. But let's face it, most of those incidents probably sprang from guests performing some sex act, drug imbibement, or more likely, some, some unholy combination of the two within a very short elapsing of time, then demanding their money back from the front desk clerk. Welcome to Miami. Mm -hmm.